Okay, we're going to be in 2 Timothy this morning. If you brought your Bible or have your Bible, the book of 2 Timothy. And sort of the leading question that I have in mind has to do with how do we become who we become? How do we, how did you grow to become who you are right now? And, and how are, what's happening to you now to grow you to be something different? That's, that's the question in my mind. Um, maybe the place I'll start to think about this, when I was a, when I was a young man, my first place my wife and I were stationed was right outside of Starkville, Mississippi, which is where Mississippi State is. I really didn't know much about football, and that that ended when I uh, moved there. <clears throat> In fact, uh, at the time, playing for Tennessee was a pretty well-known quarterback who I believe won the Heisman Trophy and went on to win two, several Super Bowls. His name was Peyton Manning. And he had a brother who did the same thing. Well, think about that. I mean, it's pretty remarkable to play football, uh, to be a starting quarterback in an SEC football team. So that's, you're already legit. But then to go on to play in the NFL, to start be a starting quarterback in the NFL, is pretty remarkable. Then to make it to a Super Bowl is really special. And then to win it. More than once. And to have a brother who did it also. At the same time. I mean, one year, Peyton Manning was the Super Bowl MVP, and the next season, Eli Manning was the Super Bowl MVP. How does that happen? Well, because I didn't know a lot about football at the time, I didn't know this, but I know now that Peyton and Eli had a dad who knew how to play football. <clears throat> and so there's, there's something at work here. How, how does this take place? We would say, well, maybe, first of all, there's a genetic disposition they're naturally athletic. It's an athletic family. How, how you become who you become, you, a good starting point would say your gene code has a vote. Some of you here are smart. Some of you here are not smart. There's nothing you can do about it. Like, sorry. I mean, you can do the most with what you have. Uh, but when the irony is, some of the things we're proudest about ourselves are the things we've actually, we can take no credit for. Like, if, you're, if you were genetically gifted with a really great brain, what you, how proud can you be of that? Thank your parents. And truth is, they can't take any credit for it. it it's happening. Now, you can meet that genetic disposition with effort, or you can labor 
inside of the way you were cut and carved. And that is another way that we've been to shape. So on top of, on top of sort of the, who we are kind of out of the gate is how we're raised. Let's just call that how we're raised. In other words, there is no manning gene that we could isolate and extract and create Super Bowl winning quarterbacks with. That gene isn't there. There was likely an athletic predisposition that was met with a dad who I imagine threw the ball with them in the backyard. And I bet you they drove, the mom and dad drove them to a lot of practices. Lots. And sort of raised them up in a know-how sort of situation. You know, one of the Manning boys would walk off the field after having thrown an interception. And like on the drive home, there were some kind of words. I don't I don't want to put words in their mouth, but I would have said, like, hey, good game. Sorry I threw an interception. I, don't, I wouldn't have been able to sort of be like, you know, I don't even know how to say what I wouldn't have been able to say. I can't say it. There's a, there's a correlation. Have you ever noticed, uh, you know, rocket scientists and doctors and lawyers oftentimes have kids who become rocket scientists and doctors and lawyers. Now, there's something that might be said for how they start, but there's a lot said for in the house is an understanding of what what needs to happen, how things need to develop, what the expectations need to be. There's a sense of that's reachable. If my parents did it, maybe I can do it. There's all, all those sorts of things at work on top of your gene code. Then you might say there's a third thing that's at work, which is sort of the culture in which we're raised. So that culture can be something from, you know, the culture of the home to, in this case, our American culture. That influences and shapes us. Americans are different than Europeans. Europeans are different than South Americans. South Americans are different than Southeast Asians. And in fact, those are such large regions that I'm I'm being almost insensitive just to group them, right? There is no African culture. There's a thousand African cultures. So, But a culture has a lot to say with how we view things, how we think about things, how we react to things. I was once in Crete. Uh, about 36 hours in Crete, and me and my buddies were walking down the street. And a Cretan, which is what I think they're called, said to me, us, I can tell you're Americans by the way you walk. Which, because we're Americans, we were all proud about. You know, like, well, that's how you should walk. But the, the reality was, we were walking shoulder to shoulder, so there are four of us. We just filled the street up. Like, of course, it's our street. We're Americans. So there's this big wall of superpower America coming down at you, is what it was, you know? And he just said, That's, we, we, we don't do that here, you know? I don't, I don't want to bust on his culture. I don't know it, but he saw, he saw us for what we were. Just by the way, we walked.
you realize even the way we walked, is, it, that connects to sort of a sense of confidence or a sense of presence or a sense of all sorts of weird little things contribute to the way you walk. Now, my interest is not in how do we produce the next Super Bowl quarterback, right? My interest is in <clears throat> recognizing all of the sorts of things that go into that and then asking ourselves, how do we raise one another to be remarkable sons and daughters of the Lord? What, what in this new family... In this culture, in this, you might even say the, your new creation, how do we mature appropriately? Where are you and where are you going? How did you become who you became? And what, what would the Lord change in that? And how does it change? That's what I want to talk about. We'll sort of be on this theme for two weeks. And we'll... we'll We'll work it out in, in first uh, or Second Timothy here. So I want to look at a pa- two passages today. The first one is in the first chapter here. It's I'm going to pick up in verse three, and these are remarks, very warm-hearted remarks of Paul to Timothy. This is a letter that Paul is writing to Timothy. Okay, and I'm just going to read sort of the opening, warm-hearted greeting that Paul has for Timothy. And as I do, what I'd ask you to listen for are words that speak to connection and relationship and how, how someone may be shaped. What shapes a person? Okay? So here we go. Verse 3. I thank God, whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers, night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother, Lois, and your mother, Eunice, and now, I am sure, dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Okay, it's a pretty warm greeting. But in it are several statements that just speak to a person's formation. The first one that I want to bring up is where Paul says, I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors. I mean, it has to mean something. Why say it? How often do you write a letter like that, where in the opening greeting you say, Hey, I'm really thankful to have visited with you. And I thank the Lord, as did my ancestors. I mean, Paul, in writing this, 
and saying, as did my ancestors, is conjuring forth, conjuring up in the mind of Timothy or anyone who reads it, sort of his, the broad fellowship he has with the culture of his people. I mean, he's, his idea of God was not derived, this is not Paul's God. This isn't the Pauline-derived God. This is the God of his ancestors. This is Yahweh. This is the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. This is the God of the exile. This is the God of the promised land. This is, I even think about this in, in light of the fact that Paul's writing this letter from prison. In fact, Paul is about to be executed. This is the last letter we have from him before his martyrdom. He's, his ministry is in its terminal state. And it's in, this, it's in this vein that he's writing. And I just wonder, you know, when he says things like that, is he, are things like the exile of Israel more meaningful to him now as he's in prison? Are things like the rejection of the prophets more meaningful to him now that he's, you know, at the end of his life? Either way, in saying hello, he's mining up for Timothy, the faith of his ancestors. He's not alone in the text here. And here's another one. A little bit later, he says in verse 5, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and also in your mother Eunice, and I'm sure, I'm certain also dwells in you. Now how does that happen? Was that genetic? Can we isolate the gene of faith? Is that what Lois had? Is she had the genetic proclivity to faith? And that's what Eunice got? And, and that's what Timothy got? Is that what Paul's saying? I don't really think so. I think more it's, it's, it's a recognition that Timothy grew up in a household that was rich in faith through his grandmother and through his mother. In fact, we know very little about Timothy's family, except we know this. His mother was a Jew but his father was not. And in fact, when Paul meets Timothy and calls Timothy to Christ, we know that Timothy hadn't even been circumcised. In fact, so he had essentially, might think, have been raised, these are my thoughts, but raised kind of in, this, in the Greco-Roman culture of his dad, but his mom and his grandma were faithful to the Lord. And somehow that had mattered for Timothy. Somehow that had contributed to Timothy. Somehow that had poured in. I mean, Paul's calling to recollection. When I think of you and I see your faith, I can't help but think of your mom's faith, the way your mom was faithful and the way your grandma was faithful. When I think of you and I think of what you've done to the Lord, I think of them. Here's another one. Verse 6. Let me remind you to fan into the flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. How did Timothy get this gift? Was he born with this gift? Was he raised in this gift? 
It sounds to me, and again, I don't know how mystical this is or, or how symbolic this is, but it sounds to me that at some point in, the ministry, in, in life, Paul identifies in Timothy either a giftedness that's latent or through the work of God, helps to impart into Timothy a giftedness from God. That's what it says. There's another time in 1 Timothy 4 where Paul reminds Timothy not to forget when the elders of the church, the elders of the congregation laid their hands on him for the gift of prophecy. So it's, it's twice in two letters that Paul mentions this. Reminds Timothy, essentially, you have been intentionally set apart within this church, within the fellowship. You must remember the way that through the others, other people, me and the other elders, that you've been set, you've been purposely cared for and groomed by God for this purpose. Here's one more. And this one we actually didn't read. I started right after it. Look at verse 2. It says this, To Timothy, my beloved child, or to Timothy, my dearest son. So Paul is writing to Timothy. I mean, so the connection, we shouldn't miss the fact that Paul is about to perish in prison and he's writing, imagine Imagine if someone wrote you a letter right before they died. What would that mean to you? Just think of someone, we don't, we're not that connected to people, many people who are getting ready to martyr. So usually the way people pass in our faith tradition is through age or illness. Just think of a person, significant person in your life who's leaving hospice is in the room. And before they leave, like they know, and think that, imagine this person knows lots of people. And imagine they are not even related to you. And before they die, they write you a letter. And that speaks to the way Paul matters to Timothy and Timothy matters to Paul. He is his father. It's a spiritual father. It's a, it's a spiritual statement. Paul will sometimes say, he says this in 1 Corinthians, he talks about himself being of the church, the father of the church, meaning there was no church until I came. And I've planted the seed and cared for the conception of this church. Your origin in Christ is through my labor. Well, here he's doing the same thing. I mean, the way, the role he plays in Timothy's life is that of a father. I mean, what does a father do? A father trains and teaches a parent. Just generalize it to a parent. The role of a parent in raising someone for the real world, of shepherding them so that they can leave your home and live a fruitful life towards whatever it is you've taught them matters. Right? We build, for those of you who are parents, we are building a construct of a kingdom. It may or may not be the kingdom of God. 
we're building a construct in the lives of our children of what a kingdom is. And we'll one day release them towards that concept. And Paul has played this role for Timothy. Paul's not even related to him. This idea of father-son, in the church of Jesus Christ, what we find is a realignment or a, a disassociation with the old idea of family. So we see things like Jesus Christ not disowning his family, but disassociating himself with his brothers and his sisters for his new brothers and sisters. A conscious choice to view the fellowship of believers as a more definitional family. Just think about how that, that, that idea zealously pushes against the concept of consumer worship. Of coming in, partaking, leaving. And it's what we find all the time. We find that the message of Jesus Christ is carried through relationships that really matter. Relationships that go a distance with each other. That's how it is. In fact, all through the letter of 2 Timothy, what what Paul will do is he'll talk about something practical and then he'll follow it up with the gospel because the practical practically flows into the gospel and out of the gospel practically flows something practical because the gospel is practical. So you see this natural sort of circular motion in many of his letters where he's got a point and the point's anchored in the gospel and the, the gospel sort of brings forth another related point and it goes on so, so on and so forth. And I had to really think about, can I really preach this message without spending much time talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ? Because it comes and it goes and, you know, golly, I'm a pastor. I should talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ. But, and I made a conscious decision today not to focus on that because I've thought, It's not that we always focus on the gospel, but we have made great game by treating the gospel as though all by itself it floats out in the ether sphere, disattached and disconnected from people. When in the story of Scripture, the good news of Jesus Christ is being plied into people by other people. It's being carried on the backs and through the lives of Christians that are living faithful lives and calling people into fellowship. And I thought, let's focus on that today. Because there really are, there really is a need for us to think about I'll let you ask it in your own way. How am I in need of a new concept of family? How am I in need? How do I maybe need to realign my thinking and my notions towards what a godly family is? How can you have grown up, for some of you, in whatever it is you grew up in, receive the message of Jesus Christ, and still act as though that does not need to be questioned? What your assumptions your thoughts, your, your baseline notions, the idea of the kingdom that was given to you 
through all of your prior upbringing, that needs to be changed or destroyed. And we see here in 2 Timothy, there's a new family. What I want us to see in this first reading is simply the overlapping reality of a nurtured faith. Timothy didn't, Timothy was not just, he didn't become, he was carefully grown into who he is by people of faith, by the story of the ancestors, by the laying on of hands, the intentionality of the fellowship, and by the fathering, the love given to him by someone else. This kind of way, this reshaping and defining, the reassociating that we do, the regrowing up that we do in the Lord is wildly different than the highly deconstructed culture that we're part of. So all of us here are growing up in a in a mindset right now where you're told through our culture, right? And our culture is powerful. You're told you're autonomous, you're you derive, you singularly derive meaning for yourself. We're told as we grow up to that your capacity to derive meaning and value and truth for yourself far exceeds what someone else might tell you. Certainly what any institution is going to say. Certainly what tradition is going to imply. And absolutely it's superior to what your parents are going to tell you. That's what we're growing up in. You can figure it out. You're a dot in space. You're this immutable, autonomous, independent, isolated dot in space. You're a creative writing assignment that you're writing about yourself. It's what you want to say about it. Do you see the radical difference between that and who you are? is the sum of how you began and what's been poured into you. Let's look at another passage. The next chapter, it's just two verses. So the first section we read is sort of this warm-hearted greeting. It's Paul recognizing how Timothy has grown into who he is. This next passage is a little bit more aimed towards how Timothy ought to develop, grow others towards fullness. It's uh, chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. He says, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses... Entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. That's it. This is the main teaching. Paul says, I hope, you're going to be, I hope you'll be strengthened in the Lord. And I hope that you'll be strengthened by remembering how I taught you. So he says to Timothy, in the strength of Christ, conjure up everything I've taught you. Okay, but those things, 
will keep you safe. And then he goes on to say, and what I want you to do, I hope you'll be strong so that you can pass on or teach or train like a father, like a parent, impart and trust what you've learned to someone else. Who will in turn do the same thing for someone else? That's what it says. It says that you would entrust this to faithful people, men or people, who will be able to teach others also. In other, in other words, what you're teaching, connected to the content of what you're teaching, is an understanding that you're teaching it to be taught. That the person who's taught would naturally share it and trust it. That the what you've learned really hasn't come to full bloom unless you are pouring it into someone else. That's what he's saying. Right teaching is not really fully discernible until it's been true enough in your life that you want to give it to someone else. How does that happen in a culture that is almost, in its very nature, isolated and individualistic? How does that happen? How does someone pass something into you And how do you therefore pass into someone? I mean, I, I think one of the great failings of the Western Christian church is the way it has extracted the teaching of Jesus Christ from the connective tissue of the fellowship. It said, what's the truth? Let's look at this in a systematic way and let's dig out of the Bible what the actual truth is. And all I need to do is study this. If I study this, I'm fine, even though this was never studied that way. It was always lived and passed and lived and passed and sort of long suffered among a fellowship. It was always part of a community's sort of connective tissue. And yet we've extracted it as though it can be just viewed objectively and embraced objectively. I recall in the in the late 90s and early 2000s, when the internet was really taking off, there was a lot of hopeful words said about, hey, now, now the gospel of Jesus Christ can reach the whole world. Just on the internet alone, it can reach the whole world. And I remember feeling a little bit weird about that. Not that I reject that. It's absolutely true. Not that I doubt that, that some person has logged on and Googled, who is Jesus, and by the end of the evening has bent a knee and said a prayer and committed his life to Christ. That, that's not, yeah, I accept all of that. It was, the, for me, one thing was weird was when the internet hit, it's not that I didn't gain the gospel, I gained pornography. So, that was a little bit hard for me to wonder. Is, well, there's a lot of other things traveling on these waves that we're giving away for free. But another thing that just has never sat with me is the extracted nature of that sort of hope. That, that all that is ever really needed is the story of the cross, which I fully attest to the sufficiency of the cross of Jesus Christ. 
I'm just saying the way it has historically passed is through the lives of people to the lives of people. That you live it out and that your faithful witness testifies to its power and makes it attractive and that you help someone appreciate in their own life the practical nature of the gospel. I see, even in our church, often I see this, I see people who want the message of Jesus, but do not do not either appreciate or will not do the work of fusing their life with someone else. And so I, what do I see? I see, and I'm not old, but I'm not young either, and I see young men blazing a trail towards what they think is success. And the whole path they're blazing is sitting right alongside some old milk cart path that some 70-year-old in this church takes every morning. Like here they are, hacking away, deriving for themselves what success is or what they ought to be doing. Boy, they, and right, in, right within 10 feet of you in this room is someone who's been there and done that. Has a gentle spirit. But the thought of the thought of learning that way now seems strange to us. You would rather go online and anonymously harvest data, 10 points from the New York Times on how to do something better next time than turn to someone who's been there and say something like, can we grab coffee like once a week? Talk. I see the same thing in the lives of women in this church. Young women or wives or moms feel isolated. Who in raising their children are deriving it as though they're the first mother on the face of the earth. You know who is the premier, premier counsel for you on how to raise kids? Are the older women in this church. Wealthy. My neighbor, he's, he and his wife are just approaching their 90s. She's 90, I think he's soon to be 90. I think they've been married 60 years. And he and I spend a lot of time together. He has this saying he says to me, he says, when an old man dies, a library burns. And it's true of men and women. That when an old man dies, a library burns. We, this is a three-generation fellowship. Will we forfeit that? Because we've bought into the culture of our immutable, isolated independent, autonomous existence? Or will we share our lives together? And don't tell someone, don't come up to me later and say, what we need is a ministry, a connecting ministry. Don't do that. You'll ruin the whole thing. Okay? 
It's not waiting for a ministry. Giving it a title is primarily a chance for you to blame something on how poor a ministry is. Okay? There are people in this room. Talk to them. Honor the younger. The path in is to honor them. If you're older, the path down is to smile and show love. Because Paul looks at Timothy and goes, man, when I see you, I think of your grandma and my ancestors and the day I laid hands on you. And I long that one day you will be so fired up about Jesus Christ and strengthened in the teachings that I've given you that you'll share it with someone else. You'll pour it into their lives like I have as a father to a son poured into you. And when you do that, you know what? They'll do it the same way. Like this cross is not an isolated concept. It is carried inside the vessel of the fellowship of believers. That's what makes it so rich. Let's pray. Lord, We ask for your grace that we will need to not be prideful or nervous about the things with which we struggle, Lord, whether that's um, someone in this church saying, hey, I, I, I'm not doing the best job at being a husband right now or someone else in this church saying, I don't know how to raise this kid. Or all the things in the midst. Lord, give us the grace that can carry the weight of a question like, why am I still single? Or... Why do I feel like God's abandoned me? These real questions that, Lord, we know who you are forming us to be will be cut through these questions, Lord. You're using these to form us and shape us. And that the enemy would have us isolate and answer these in dark silence. We pray, Lord, for a great spirit of shared living here. Lord, we confess that we're not very confessional. So Lord, please help us to sort of let our walls down and allow us, Lord, to look at one another with purpose for you've called us here together. We pray this In the name of Jesus, amen.